We are coming to what I uh, think is probably one of the most awe-inspiring points of our series uh, up to this point. If you're new with us this morning or maybe you're just tuning in uh, for the first time in a little while, uh, we are in a series here in our church called Looking to Jesus, and we have been spending the better part of 2018 going from the beginning of God's Word in the book of Genesis, Lord willing, to the end of God's Word in the book of Revelation by the time we get to Christmas, and we're finding that the, the Bible actually tells just one singular story, that for all of the people that we meet, for all of the stories that we read, the Bible is about one simple story, and it's about the story of redemption. It's about the reality that God loves you so much, and he loves me so much that he has given his one and only son to die on the cross in our place and for our sins. He loves us that much. And so for the past nine months or so, uh, we have been methodically moving our way through the Old Testament, and we've been reading stories of prophets and stories of kings and, and realizing that those are not just stories of prophets and kings, but those are stories of prophets who are meant to point us to the greater prophet. And they're stories of kings who are meant to point us to the king of kings, who of course is Jesus himself. But this morning we come to a passage in God's word that I believe is absolutely pivotal, not simply in our series, but really in the entire biblical storyline. And um, it, it dawned on me this week, and I found this kind of ironic, I actually found it pretty hilarious, that for the past nine months, we have been going through this series, and we have been waiting for Jesus. We have been looking to Jesus. We've been spending the past nine months waiting for baby Jesus to be born, and now here we are nine months later, and the baby's born today. Like, how amazing is that, right? Like, I didn't even plan it like that. It just worked out that way, and I thought that was hilarious. So, um, any parents in the house? Hands up if you're a parent. Yeah, yeah, glad to be a parent. Lots of parents in the house, and you know, right? You know what that nine months of waiting is like, right? You know the excitement, you know um, the energy, you know the anticipation, maybe even the nervousness along the way. You know what that nine months is like and how you spend all that time trying to prepare, trying to get ready, trying to do everything you possibly can for the day when the baby's finally going to be born, only to get close to the end of that nine months and realize that you can't do everything, right? You can never be totally ready, but then that day comes, and the baby is about to be born, and mom, you go into labor, and dad, you drive like a madman to the hospital, and, and then the baby is finally born, and all of the pain leading up to that moment is eclipsed by the joy that you hold in your arms. And you realize that that little baby that has been born to you is about to change everything for you. And for some of us, uh, it's the story of fostering or adoption, and you bring a, a little child into your home, and you realize that the moment that that child walks into your home and, and walks through the front door, life is going to change dramatically. It's going to change everything for you. If you haven't already, take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And this morning, uh, we're going to take some time and and we're going to read and learn about the birth of Jesus Christ. And we're going to realize that the birth of Jesus Christ did not simply change life for Mary and Joseph as they knew it. But the birth of Jesus Christ actually changes life for all of human history. The birth of Jesus Christ is actually meant to change life for you and me as well. So follow along in your Bible. Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 18 down through to the end of verse 25. Matthew 1 starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name 
Jesus. What I'd like to do this morning is work our way through this passage with three headings or three questions, and I want to give you those headings right up front this morning as we get into this. The three headings are this. Number one, how Jesus came. Number two, why Jesus matters. And number three, what Jesus requires. So how Jesus came, why Jesus matters, and what Jesus requires. But before we do that, let's pray together. Father, um, even now as we come into your word, uh, Lord, I pray that, again, our hearts would just be filled with a gratitude, with a thankfulness that uh, you have spoken to us in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, that this word that we hold in front of us, this word that is open now before us, this has been inspired by you, Holy Spirit of God, and given to us to teach us, to lead us, to instruct us, to correct us to train us in righteousness, that we would live the life of a fully equipped child of God. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that even we're about to learn this morning, truth that is absolutely foundational to who we are and what you have called us to do as your children. So God, realizing now the importance of this moment, I pray, would you draw near to us by the power of your spirit? Would you... Be our teacher, Holy Spirit. Lead us in the way that we need to go. Give us eyes to see the things that we need to see, ears to hear what we need to hear, hearts full of faith to believe what we need to believe, to believe that your way to live this life is the absolute best way, and there is no other way. Give us eyes that are fixed upon Jesus, our Savior, the author and perfecter of our faith. So Lord, we give you this time and I pray even now that the truth of your word would speak into the circumstances of our lives. Lord, help us to see that this time is not disconnected from everything else that we experience in our life, but this time is actually foundational to it. So God, we give this to you and I pray that you would even now fill us with a zeal for your word. Fill us with a zeal for your presence among us, Lord. May we not be satisfied with where we are at in our relationship with you when we walked into this room this morning, but realizing that you have so much more for us, so much more that you desire to do in us and with us and around us and among us. Lord, I pray, speak to us this morning. Change us, shape us. Remind us of your great love and faithfulness to us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so three headings, three questions. How Jesus came, why Jesus matters, and what Jesus requires. Let's begin with this, number one, how Jesus came. And you'll notice as we make our way through the first few verses here in Matthew chapter one in this passage, you'll notice three observations about how Jesus came. Notice this, first of all, he came plainly. He came plainly. The first part of verse 18 says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Don't you love that about God? Like, don't you love the reality that God's not trying to hide anything from us? That he's telling us how he's working. He's telling us what he's doing. Even here in this passage, he's telling us right off the top that he is sending his only son to be the Messiah. And the purpose for why Jesus came is wrapped up in the name that God has given him. His name is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. The thing about that name is that there were a lot of boys in that time and in that culture who had the name Jesus. So you could go and and you'd find a whole bunch of little Jesuses running around the Hebrew playground. And it'd be like going into a kindergarten class today and you've got like 14 Caleb's and 13 Connors and that's it. Like they all have the same names, right? And so there's a bunch of little Jesuses running around in this Hebrew culture. But what makes this Jesus different is the title that God gives him. His title is Christ, which means that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one that God is sending to save his people from their sins. And so right from the very beginning of this passage, right from the very beginning of this story, God is making it very plain what he is doing, that Jesus now is coming plainly. So take that and put that now into the context of our series. We have gone through, from the very beginning of the Old Testament, thousands of years of biblical history, all of which have meant to point us to this Messiah. 
It's meant to point us to this little baby that's being born in this passage right now. Think about this. The Old Testament ends with the prophet Malachi. And Malachi was sent to the people of Judah to warn them to turn away from their apathy and turn away from their backsliding from God and and turn back to God. And like every other prophet who had come before him, Malachi points the people to the coming Messiah to say that he will be your hope. He is your only hope of knowing God. And then from the end of Malachi, there follows a period of about 400 years, a little more than 400 years, where it appears that God is silent. There are no prophets that come to proclaim the message of God. And there are no kings like David and Solomon who come to point us to the greater king. There's just generation after generation after generation of God's people wondering if God is going to be faithful to the promise that he has made to send his Messiah. But then we get to the start of verse 18 here in Matthew 1, and the whole story just explodes. And it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Are you not thankful that Jesus comes to you and me in the very same way? That he comes to us plainly. And he's not trying to hide anything from us. He's not trying to keep anything from us when it comes to us understanding what it means for us to be in a relationship with him and what he expects from us in the way that we live. In fact, from the very beginning, Jesus made it super clear. John 3, verse 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. John 3.16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Matthew 4.17, the first sermon Jesus preaches, he looks out to the people and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Romans 10, 9 through 11, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in the name of the Lord will not be put to shame. He's not hiding anything from us. From the very beginning, he teaches us what it means to be in relationship with him, what he expects from us, and Jesus comes to us plainly. Listen, we believe and we are saved because Jesus has come to us plainly. But notice this as well. It's not just that he has come plainly. He has come powerfully. Jesus has come powerfully. Notice the next part of verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus comes plainly, but he also comes powerfully. Now don't miss how God works powerfully in the midst of an ordinary circumstance. This betrothal of Mary and Joseph, um, this was like the precursor to the official marriage. And the marriage was arranged by the parents of the young man and the young woman who were getting married. And they would come together and they would make this agreement and this betrothal would last for a period of one full year. And that was an opportunity for the couple who was getting married to demonstrate their commitment of purity to one another. But during that one year, if, if the woman was found to be pregnant, then the husband could immediately annul the marriage. He could, he could immediately begin the process to divorce his wife, and it would be very likely that the woman would be stoned to death in public as a consequence for her unfaithfulness toward her husband. So you have to understand, that's what's happening with Mary and Joseph right now at this particular point. We need to understand that we can't miss how God works powerfully in the midst of ordinary circumstances. Mary and Joseph are going through an ordinary circumstance for their time and their culture. A special circumstance, yes. An exciting circumstance, yes. But they're going through an ordinary process in their time and in their culture that many other people would have gone through as well. And it's into that ordinary circumstance that the Holy Spirit of God breaks through and begins to do something absolutely extraordinary. Now, do you believe that God can act on your ordinary circumstances in a powerful way? And in such a way that it could only be explained by the Spirit of God doing something supernatural in the midst of that circumstance. Because, loved ones, listen, if we do believe that, then we will pray. If we don't believe that, then we won't pray. I need to tell you that I have been 
convicted about this particular point almost all of this week. Just working through this passage and, and realizing what God is teaching here. I've, I've been convicted about this like in a way that I haven't been convicted about something in a long time like I have been about this. And, and honestly, no exaggeration, to the point where it frightens me to think of what will happen to us as a family of faith. What will happen to us as the body of Jesus Christ if we give up on prayer? Like It frightens me to think of the possibility of God lifting his hand from us if we don't understand the importance and the necessity and the priority of prayer, not just within our individual lives, but within the life of this church. We have to persist in prayer. See, if you're praying by yourself, that's great. We, we need to pray by ourselves. We need to have that time alone with God where we bring our needs and our requests and our worship and our praise before him. If you're praying with your small group or if you're praying with the ministry team that you serve with here on a weekend or, or in a midweek ministry, if you're praying with those people, that's great. We need to keep doing that. We must not give up on that. We have to persist in prayer. But at the very same time, we must be coming together as the body of Christ, as the family of faith in this place, and we must be praying together. We must be seeking the face of God to break into our ordinary circumstances and do something extraordinary that can only be explained supernaturally by the work of the Holy Spirit among us. Think about this for a minute. Why is it that so many Christians are dissatisfied in their relationship with God. I mean, maybe that's you. Like, maybe you're sitting here right now and and you're like, dude, you're singing my song. Like, you're asking the question that I'm asking. Why is it that so many Christians are dissatisfied in their relationship with God? Why is it that so many churches that that we see around us and, and the danger even for us as a church, why is it that so many churches are just satisfied with the status quo? Like we come to church on Sunday and we do this and we sing that song and we sing the other song and we sing that song and then we lift up a a really quick prayer and then we give a message that's very loosely tied to the Bible and then we sing another song then we go home, we don't see each other, talk to each other for an entire week and then we come back next week and do the same thing and just keep repeat. Like why is it that so many are satisfied with the status quo? Why is it that we look out around us and so many churches today are dying slow deaths? I want to suggest to you that one of the main reasons this is happening, and I'm sure there's a number of different factors playing into it, but I would suggest that one of the main reasons it's happening, that so many Christians are dissatisfied in their relationship with God, so many churches are dying slow deaths, is because we are not diving deep into the two things that God has given us to know him best, the word and prayer. The word and prayer, the word and prayer, the word and prayer. It is that simple. Like, why do we make it so complicated sometimes, right? It's that simple, the word and prayer. Last Sunday, standing up here, like right here, after our 9 o'clock service, and I'm up here with the rest of our prayer team who's up here as well, and and there's this 14-year-old young man who walks up to the front, and he walks up to me right here, and he says to me, Pastor, I just want to know God better. How do I do that? And I am almost certain I heard the angels singing when he asked that question because that is an outstanding question. I will stand here and have that conversation with anyone of any age any day of the week. I will come back here in the middle of the week if that's what it takes and have that conversation with anybody. That is an absolutely outstanding question. I just want to know God better. What do I do? So I, I told him the same thing I just told you, the word and prayer. The word and prayer, the word and prayer, the word and prayer, the two things God has given us to know him best. Dive into his word. Dive into prayer. Start by praying, God, I just want to know you better. Give me a heart that longs to pray. Give me a heart that longs for your word. Give me a heart that has a zeal and a passion that can't do without your word, that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Just start there. Just start praying, God, do this work in me so that I draw closer to you. good friend in this church um, sent me a quote this week by Andrew Murray. Listen to what he says. He says, We must begin to believe that God, in the mystery of prayer, 
has entrusted us with a force that can move the heavenly world and can bring its power down to earth. Do we believe that? You need to understand, loved ones, I, I'm not just asking this to you. Like, I get it. I've, I've been marinating in this now for like five days. Okay? I've been just soaking in this. I get it. And I'm fire hosing on you right now. I understand that. This is the first time you're hearing this. But, but I say this not because I want to make myself sound any more spiritual than anybody else in the room. That's not at all what I'm trying to do. But I'm just telling you, this week has brought confession and repentance in my own life around these very things. Like, Lord, why am I not praying more? God, why am I not in your word more. God, give me the heart. Give me the zeal for these things. And I need to tell you that God has been gracious to meet me in those moments of confession and repentance. And he will do the very same for you. Listen, loved ones, if we are not a praying church, we will be a dying church. And if we become a dying church, it will not be very long before we descend to the level where we depend more on programs than we do on prayer. If we become a dying church, it will not be long before we descend to the level where we depend more on dynamic personalities than we do on divine power. We will descend to the place where we become consumers, not confessors, where we become retailers, not repenters, where we are empty instead of overflowing, where we are filled with excuses instead of filled with the Spirit. But if we pray, we will see the power of heaven invade the problems of earth. Do you believe that? If we pray, we will see the power of heaven invade the problems of earth. Listen, if we believe that the Son of God can move powerfully in the circumstances of our lives, however ordinary or however difficult they might be, whatever it is that you're going through, I say this with so much love and so much grace right now, but I say this, if we believe that the Son of God can move powerfully in our circumstances, then I can't think of a reason why this area up here should not be full of people after our service pleading with the Lord in prayer. I can't think of a reason why our once-a-month prayer meetings are not as packed out as this room is right now. If we will pray, he will hear us. Like, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I love what God is doing here. I love what God continues to do here. I love coming to this church on Sunday mornings and looking around and seeing the passion. Like, I was sitting over here just a few minutes ago, and the volume of you singing in this moment, the passion, the hands raised. Like, I'm not looking around all the time. I'm trying to worship myself, but I can't help it. And I just look around and see the passion in this place. I just love that. Like, we can't stop that. I love the fact that I can stand up here at the front and look out after a service and see little pockets of people gathering together and praying with one another after the service is over. I love it when you come to the front and you meet me up here and say, Pastor, can you pray with me about this? Like, you need to know, all these people that are standing up here after our service as part of our prayer team, we are so blessed and so encouraged when you make your way up to the front and say, I've got this going on in my life, and I need the power of Jesus to come into that circumstance and do something for me. You have no idea how much that blesses every single one of us who are standing up here. Like, more of that, please, more, okay? Like, we love that. And I love the fact that, that you can walk out into the hallway, you can even walk out into the parking lot some days, and there's little huddles of people who are gathered together, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, lips are moving, and they're calling out to God for somebody in that group. I love that right now, just outside of this room, there's somebody in a really small room, maybe sometimes with one or two other people, and they're in there right now, and they are praying for this right now. They are praying for me as I proclaim the word. They are praying for us as we receive the word. They're praying that the Lord Jesus would supernaturally move in this moment right now. I love what's happening. I love these things that I look around and see. But understand something, loved ones. This right here, this is not the only way that we measure the heat that radiates from this church. This is important. This is critical. 
But this is not the only way. One of the other key ways that we measure the temperature of this church is when the church gathers to pray. It's at the prayer meeting. The prayer meeting is the furnace that will keep this church hot. It's the urgency, it's the transparency, it's the glory that is being given to God as the people of God gather to pray to our God by the power of the Spirit of God led by the Word of God. You might be sitting there thinking to yourself, why is this so important? Why do we keep talking about this? Why does the church prayer meeting matter so much? It matters for at least a couple of reasons that I can see in God's Word. It matters because when we gather together to pray as a church, you notice very quickly that the emphasis begins to move away from me and it moves to we. Instead of me, 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 it's we, 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 all the way home, right? Isn't that how it goes, right? So, so the emphasis gets off of me and it goes on all of us and, and all of a sudden our prayers are not so much Lord, I need, Lord, I need, Lord, I need. All of a sudden our prayers move to Lord, show us your glory. Lord, show us your glory. Lord, we need you. Lord, we praise you. Lord, we call out to you. It moves from me. It moves from you as individuals and it moves to us collectively as the body of Christ. Why is the prayer meeting so important? It's so important because we see the, the family of faith commands of the Bible coming together at the prayer meeting. You say, what do you mean? The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Romans 12, 15. We see that come together at the prayer meeting. The Bible says bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2. We see that coming together at the prayer meeting. The Bible says, let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds, and all the more as we see the day approaching, Hebrews 10, that comes together at the prayer meeting. See, when we gather together as God's people to pray as God's church, it's a reminder that we have instant access to the God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present all the time. And we need to be reminding one another of that. So it's great that you pray on your own. It's great that you pray with your small group. That's great. But we need to gather collectively together as the body of Christ and call out to our God in prayer. Why does this matter so much? It matters so much because Jesus himself says, my house shall be a house of what? A house of prayer. Notice there, he says, my house. His church, his gathered church, but us as believers as well because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. Notice he does not say, my house shall be a house of programs. He doesn't say, my house shall be a house of ministries or a house of consumption or a house of creativity or a house of clever ideas to reach more people. He doesn't say even that my, he doesn't even say, my house shall be a house of worship or my house shall be a house of preaching. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer because it's in prayer that we see the power of heaven invade the problems of earth. So we need to come together. If we are a praying church, we will see that kind of power. I want to share with you a quote that I read just on Friday from Leonard Ravenhill. And uh, this kicked me in the teeth in the most godly way possible. He says this, No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is plain. The people who are not praying are straying. The pulpit can be a shop window to, dis to display one's talents. The prayer closet allows no showing off. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. The secret of praying is praying in secret. A sinning man will stop praying and a praying man will stop sinning. In the matter of New Testament, spirit-inspired, hell-shaking, world-breaking prayer, never has so much been left by so many to so few. For this kind of prayer, there is no substitute. We do it or we die. 
if we are a praying church, then we will see the power of heaven invade the problems of earth. So notice here how Jesus came. He came plainly. He came powerfully. And then notice this. He came promptly. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph is described here in this passage as a just man. That means that he's a true believer in God. He desires to live his life for God. And as he looks at this particular situation right now, he can see that he has one of two choices. He can take care of this privately, and he can try and save himself some shame and embarrassment, and the same for Mary. Or he can do this publicly, and he can try and earn back some of his reputation, but it would probably mean Mary dying in the process. And so Joseph has compassion on her, and at the end of verse 20, it says at just the right time and just the right way, God came to him and redirected his path. God is telling Joseph to do the one thing that makes the least sense. Because in telling Joseph to do this, God is leading him down a path that will most surely bring more shame and more humiliation on Joseph. I mean, can you not hear his prayer right now? Like, Lord, this is what I'm going to do. Because this seems to reflect your heart for this particular situation. I'm going to have compassion on her. So this is what I'm going to do, God. And I wonder how many of us go into our times of prayer already having decided what we're going to do. Like, understand that that that's okay when we know that God's desire, his heart for the situation is already clearly revealed in his word because that then is the will of God. That is what we need to do. But if God turns a corner that you did not see coming, are you willing to go with him? And more so, are you willing to go with him if that new path down which God takes you actually makes it harder for you? See, that's where Joseph is right now. Understand that the confirmation that you are doing the right thing for God is not always found in the easy place. How many of us know that to be true, right? That's not always the way it goes. In fact, more often than we realize, God's heavenly purposes are found in the hard places. So the question for us is, are you willing to change course if that's where God is going? And I want you to notice something really critical here. Notice what happens when God is invited into the hard places of your life. Verse 20, notice the end of verse 20 after the angel now is speaking and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Notice what happens when God is invited into the hard places of your life. He gives you the assurance of two things. One, he knows your name, and two, he takes your fear. He knows your name, and he takes your fear. I mean, we can't even begin to imagine what Joseph is feeling at this point. We have no idea what he's thinking. I mean, this is a totally unique circumstance, and, and he's just looking for a quiet way out until God comes and does something totally different for him. And in the process, God gives him the assurance that he knows his name, and he takes his fear. Loved ones, listen. God knows what you're going through. God knows where you are. He knows how you're feeling. He knows the trial. He knows the suffering. He knows the persecution. He knows the uncertainty. He knows the doubt and the fear and the anxiety and the worry. And when you invite God into those hard places of your life, you have the assurance that he will do two things for you. He knows your name meaning he knows exactly who you are because he has created you in his image and for his glory and therefore he knows exactly what you need in that situation. And not only does he know your name, but then he takes your fear. He takes it upon himself. And he gives you the assurance that he goes with you. How did Jesus come? He came plainly, he came powerfully, he came promptly. This is how Jesus came to Mary and Joseph. It's how he comes to us as well. This actually highlights now for us the second question, why Jesus matters. Why Jesus matters. And notice here again, three observations. Why does Jesus matter? First of all, he matters because he is the saving one. He's the saving one. Notice verse 21. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This, loved ones, is the heart of the incarnation. This is God coming to us, coming to his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And again, there were many little boys at that time who had the name Jesus, and a lot of parents named their boys Jesus because they had this hope that their little guy would grow up to be the one that God would use to deliver the people from the oppression that they were under. The problem, though, is that so many people at that time lived with the the thinking that the oppression they needed to be delivered from was the political oppression over them or the cultural oppression around them. What they did not realize was that what they ultimately needed to be delivered from was the sinful oppression within them. So now Jesus comes and, and this baby that is born in the manger came to die on the cross. See, what so many of these people didn't realize is that this little baby was the fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies and hundreds of promises over thousands of years. That this little baby would grow up and live a perfect, sinless life. Just stop and think about the magnitude of that statement. A perfect, sinless life. Never sinned. Never disobeyed his parents. Never broke the law. No texting and driving. Like, none of that. He, he didn't do anything because he was totally and completely perfect all of the time. And then, many years later, he would step out of the shadows and he would preach his very first message. He would look into the eyes of the people in the crowd and he would say to them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he would travel through the countryside into the towns and the villages, into the synagogues and the temples, and, and he would continue to proclaim this message, calling people to turn away from their sins and turn away from themselves and turn to him and believe in him. He would preach this message, believe in God, Jesus says, and believe also in me. And he would continue going around into these places, performing all of these miracles, and he would heal the sick and make the lame to walk and the blind to see and cast out demons and walk on water and raise people from the dead. All of these things as a sign to validate the reality that he is the Son of God, sent by God to save his people from their sins. And he would do this enough that eventually it would lead him to be wrongly accused, falsely convicted, and ultimately sentenced to die, not simply as a criminal on a cross like so many people did in those days, but he would die as the Son of God for the sins of the world. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, that he died in the flesh but was raised in the Spirit. He was raised to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. He rose again and he proved that he alone has victory over sin and death forever so that today, right here and right now, anyone who turns away from their sins and believes in him will be forgiven of their sins and will be given the hope of eternal life. And you will be filled with a sense of hope and peace and joy and love washing over your life like you have never known before. All of this because of Jesus. And so we invite you today, if that's you, if that's where you are, if you're just kind of wandering through this life right now and you have no sense of purpose, no sense of hope, no sense of joy or where God is going or or how he's using your life, then we invite you this morning, like we do so many times, we invite you to turn away from your sins. Turn away from yourself and turn to your Savior. Turn to the Saving One. Turn to Jesus Christ and you will know in that moment as you turn away from yourself and you turn to him that you will be filled with a sense of love and joy and peace and hope like you have never known before. It will change your life forever. And for the rest of us who are here who already know him as our Savior and we've surrendered our lives to him, the invitation for us this morning is to rest in the finished work of the saving one. To know that everything that needs to be done to make us right with God has been done by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is nothing more you can do because when you try to add to it, you actually take away from it. He is the saving one. Why does Jesus matter? Because he's also the promised one. Notice verse 22. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a direct quote that comes from Isaiah 7, verse 14, where Isaiah spoke this prophecy into a culture, into a time where the people were threatened by um, just the evil around them, being threatened by an attack from the nations around them. And isn't it interesting 
that Jesus comes into the world under the same circumstances in Matthew chapter 1 as what was prophesied in Isaiah 7, where evil is abounding all around and threatening to overtake us. But in Christ, God sends the one who will deliver us not only from the evil that threatens us around us, but ultimately to deliver us from the evil that threatens us from within us. And he will do it in a supernatural way. He will do it in a way that can only be explained as something that God himself could do. He does it through the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Like that is unbelievable. He does this through the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Like you do not need to be a doctor to understand this is not the way it works. Ever. Like this is how God does it. So God must be trying to teach us something significant here. So ask this, why does the virgin birth of Jesus Christ matter so much? I want to give you three reasons why it matters so much. You may want to jot them down. You need to understand, loved ones, that this is absolutely foundational to our faith. Okay, This is one of those things that we do not compromise on. Why does the virgin birth of Jesus Christ matter so much? Number one, because it teaches us that salvation is from God. It teaches us that this whole process of salvation had to begin with God because we look at the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and humanly speaking, this makes no sense to us. It makes no sense at all. That's why I love the Christmas story so much because the Christmas story is not about Santa, it's not about presents, it's not about eggnog, it's not about all that stuff, not dissing any of that stuff, that's all fine and dandy, but the Christmas story is about the story of the gospel. It's about Jesus coming to us. Like think Ephesians 2. And you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Fast forward to verse 4 and, and it says, but God. Like that is amazing. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that he may show us the incomparable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one should boast. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This has been done by God. Like this is his work. It starts with him. It ends with him. Every part in between is God. Why does the virgin birth of Jesus matter so much? Second, because it teaches us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. God could have sent his son into the world in any way that he wanted. But it would have been hard for us to understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully man if God had done it any other way. So we need to understand, loved ones, that Jesus is fully God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and he is fully man, born of a woman. He is not half and half. He's not God in this situation and man in that situation. He's not God sometimes over here and man sometimes over here. No, he is fully God and fully man. He is all God and all man all the time. So what does the virgin birth of Jesus Christ teach us? It teaches us the humanity of Jesus without sin. Think about this. We all inherit sin from Adam. But Jesus does not have a human biological father like we do, and so that line of sin is partially interrupted. Jesus does not descend from Adam like we do, and therefore the guilt and the corruption that we bear because of our sin, Jesus does not bear. It does not belong to him. Which, by the way, is exactly what makes Jesus the only acceptable sacrifice before God to cover our sins. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ matters so much, loved ones. And you need to understand that there are so many people in the big C church who are trying to cast a massive cloud of doubt over the reality of this truth. They're saying it's a myth. It's, it's too far-fetched. There's no way that we can believe that. Listen, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is no match for the God who calms the seas and raises the dead. He can do it, and he has done it. And basically, for you and I today, this comes down to us believing in the power and the sufficiency of God's word. God's word clearly lays out the reality before us of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So the question that you and I need to be asking ourselves right now is this. The Bible clearly says it. Do I truly believe it?
Because if you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, that God could do this absolutely amazing miracle in sending his only son into this earth, then you can absolutely, totally, and unequivocally believe every promise that God has made in his word. Every single one of his promises are true. So why does Jesus matter? Matters because he's the saving one, he's the promised one, and then notice this, he is the ever-present one. Verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has come close to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he has promised us that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. He has promised us that he is with us always, even to the very end of the age. So think about what you have coming up this week. Maybe you've got something that's hard and heavy in your life and you're not sure how you're going to make it through. Just think of how it could totally change your perspective to stop before you go into that situation and pray, Lord, I know that you're with me. I know that you're with me going into this doctor's appointment. I know that you're going with me into this job that I don't like anymore. I know that you're with me going into this conversation where I'm going to have to take a stand for my relationship with you, God. I know that you're with me. And so, Lord Jesus, now I pray, strengthen me with your presence. He's the ever-present one. How Jesus came, why Jesus matters, this leads us now to what Jesus requires. So if we understand how Jesus came and why Jesus matters, then it must lead us to embrace what Jesus requires. Notice verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So what does Jesus require? Notice here quickly, three observations again. First of all, Jesus requires faith in his plan. Requires faith in his plan. All of this is out of this world unusual, right? Like an angel appears to Joseph. More angels will appear to Mary. Even more angels will fill the skies and sing the praises of God at the birth of Jesus Christ. God led the wisest men in the world at that time through the countryside by moving a star through the sky at his will. Thousands of years of prophecy are fulfilled in the birth of this little baby in an out-of-the-way place that nobody ever goes to. Not to mention that the whole thing is topped off by a virgin giving birth to God himself. Like, this is out of this world unusual. So may we never, never come to the Christmas story ever again and just like, oh, ho-hum, I've read it all before, but it's Christmas and this is what we do and I know how the story ends. May we never do that, ever again. Like, just think of what must have been going through Joseph's mind and in his heart right now as he wakes up in verse 24. Like, four times through Matthew 1 and 2, We're told that Joseph is told a dream by an angel about what to do. Like this is going to take extraordinary faith. Joseph didn't understand the full implications of what was happening and what would happen in the next little while, but he knew enough. Because God had told him that his wife was going to give birth to a boy who would save his people from their sins and, and that his birth would fulfill A prophecy, a specific prophecy that was made by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before. Like, that's enough to rattle anybody's cage. But that's the kind of devotion that Jesus requires. It's the kind of devotion that would lead Noah to build an ark and Abraham to leave his home and Moses to go to Pharaoh and David to fight Goliath and Esther to save her people and you to... What? You fill in that blank. It's the kind of faith that leads you to make a move change direction, share your faith, count the cost. What is it leading you to do? Jesus requires faith in his plan, but he also requires a denial of self. Verse 24, notice again, it says that Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded and he took his wife. The betrothal period was not done yet, so Joseph was breaking custom. He had the right to start a legal process that would kind of save his reputation and spare him some humiliation. All he had to do at this point was just pay the price and he would get the certificate of divorce and he could just walk away. But then at the exact right moment, in the exact right way, Joseph hears from God and he changes course. And now notice what's happening here. Joseph is willing to pay the price for what he thought was Mary's sin. 
He was willing to let his righteousness cover what he thought was the unrighteousness of his wife. And he would take all of the shame and all of the humiliation upon himself. And that is a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. See, loved ones, if it was left up to us, we would do the easy thing every time, right? We would walk away from the hard thing and we would do the easy thing every single time. Our tendency is to go easy and avoid hard. Our tendency is to feed our flesh long before we ever deny ourselves. And the only way that we will ever deny ourselves for the sake of doing what Jesus wants us to do is to turn to Jesus. It's to trust in Jesus. It's to turn to the one who himself turned away from the glory and the perfection of heaven and he came to earth and he was born into this world to save his people from their sins and he alone has paid the price for us. His righteousness covers over our unrighteousness and he takes our shame and our humiliation all upon himself. The only reason that we can deny ourselves to do what Jesus wants us to do is because Jesus has shown us what it means to deny ourselves because he did it for us. So that temptation that you have to walk away from the hard thing, that temptation that you have just to give in to the easy thing, turn to Jesus. Which leads us then to the courage to endure. Think for a minute what life was like for Mary and Joseph from this point forward. Think for a minute of all the finger pointing, the laughing, the mocking. Think of all the times they would sit down at the table and try to explain to people why they believed what they did. Sound familiar to anybody? Consider him, Hebrews 12 says, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look to Jesus. Hope arrives in the birth of Jesus Christ and teaches us how Jesus came, why Jesus matters, and what Jesus requires.